Now, who are you again exactly? Clarence Oddbody, A2. A2? It, oh my god. Oh my god, it's finally happening. Is James Cameron's Avatar 2 actually going to come out? Did he fucking send you for me to go watch and review Avatar 2? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. Oh, f shoot me now. I can't do it. I won't do it. Now look, you mustn't talk like that. I won't get my wings with that attitude. You just don't know all that you've done. If it hadn't been for you... No, 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 no. You, do, you don't understand. We, we started joking about the divine prescience of James Cameron on this podcast I do called You're Tall But I'm Standing in Front of You. So now I have to, like, commit myself to actually seeing Avatar 2 in theaters in the middle of a pandemic. Oh, this isn't going to be so easy. You're telling me? I mean, I'm the one that's going to have to edit down, like, four fucking hours of my co-host going on about how, like, the Avatar's marketing campaign augurs in a terrifying evolution of the surveillance state, and I just physically can't do it anymore. Like, frankly, I wish that Devin and I had just never done this fucking podcast to begin with. What'd you say? I said I wish Devin and I had just never started your tall, but I'm standing in front of you. Oh, you mustn't say things like that. You... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's an idea. What do you think? Yeah, that'll do it. All right. You've got your wish. Oh, hey, hey, Devin. How's it going? Uh, oh, is that Ethan? Hey. Buddy, I haven't seen you for years. Where have you been? What What are you talking about? We see each other all the time. Like, way no, too frequently. I. No, I haven't seen you. Like, you moved down to Mississippi a while ago, and then, like, I've just been, like, kind of working on myself and my own life and, like, my prospects. Wait, what have you been working on? Oh, you know, I'm, like, I'm, like, uh, I've been learning piano. I've been, like, finishing my dissertation extremely quickly and with no, uh, no uh, hang-ups and, and... What are all these? You got a huge stack of papers here. What's oh, that all oh, about? Th those are all of my offers for tenure-track jobs. Really? I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm just trying to decide which one I want to accept because, you know, some they come with like the private, the private bathroom, you know, some it's like you don't get the private bathroom, but, you know, there's like an extra 20,000 a year. So I'm just trying, I'm trying to sort through all the, all the details and, and, uh, and make a decision. What, what about you? What have you been? I, I've been fine. I think seem, seems like things are really working out well for you. You just like settling down here? What is happening? Oh, yeah, yeah. I just bought a uh, new house in the area because I've, I've got job offers from at least like five universities in the Philly area. So I bought wow. this new house. I just had new plumbing put in. I had all the plumbing replaced. <laughs> do you have uh, Scapelli do it? What? Scapelli from uh, Super Mario Brothers, 1993 is... film. I have uh, never seen that movie, so I don't know what you're talking about. What? Nope. Uh, oh my God. Is this some kind of like anti-Italian ex joke or? I mean, sort of. I am Italian, I... so you know that's kind of offensive to me. Devin, I gotta go. What? Are you? Are you alright? I got. You need some help. Or... I gotta go. Clarence. <laughs> Clarence, I I I want I want a pot again. Clarence, Wait. I, I Wait. want a pot again. Ethan, are you? Do you hear that? There's like some like music playing or something. Do you know where that's coming from? I or... want a pot again. <laughs> Clarence! 
You're tall, but I'm standing in front of you. It's a podcast. Welcome to your tall, but I'm standing in front of you, the podcast where two friends circling the drain of academia examine the cultural detritus of the 20th century. I'm Devin. I'm Ethan. Merry Christmas, buddy. Merry Christmas. Ha- uh, happy holidays. Happy holidays. We've just been. <laughs> no, Biden can't. You we've, can't. We've just been alerted. Yeah. Biden I just want to say Christmas. There's not. That's done. Yeah. Well, you know, it is. With the, the the your tall flags are at half mass today uh, mm. in remembrance of President Joe Biden, <laughs> as they have been for <laughs> many years. Yeah. <laughs> remembrance of uh, of the Build Back Better plan. <laughs> We've decided oh, to uh, that wily Joe Manchin. He got us again. Who could have seen this coming? He's just so clever. Yeah, if only. If only we could have uh, chosen a candidate uh, for the Democratic nomination based on the idea that he would be able to work with Congress and get things done, even if other uh, candidates had better ideas that that were unrealistic. Uh, Ethan, tell the folks why we're here on the on the special holiday, this the 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 American holiday of Christmas. Yeah, well, we wanted to celebrate American Christmas with uh, a classic American film. It's a Wonderful Life, starring the, uh, of course, underrated Jimmy Stewart. According to Ben Shapiro. According to Ben Shapiro. Now, let's just say hypothetically that Jimmy Stewart was an actor in this film. He'd be very underrated. I think also uh, like 80 other actors. Yeah, including um, Lionel Barrymore. The, the what, ancestor great uncle of, of Drew Barrymore. Yeah, yeah you great said uncle ancestor. Great, great, ancestor. <laughs> <A> great uncle, <laughs> the ancestor of the Barrymore line. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know yeah. which. Uh, They're American royalty, so you can you can yeah. phrase it like that. Yeah. Uh, and directed, of course, by uh, by uh, Italian American. Uh, Take your time. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, you know, Italiano American hero, <laughs> Frank Capra. Ray the, uh, Capra. the Chris Cuomo <laughs> of his time. Oh no! Uh, oh no! <laughs> but uh, um, but no, you know, it's the classic Christmas movie. Yeah. Uh, supposedly, I had never seen it before. Wow! Uh, but like, this is the thing that they they always play on TV during Christmas. I was surprised to find out it didn't actually make money at the time. Oh but really? Then once it went into the public domain. I guess it's kind of famous for this. Like once it went into the public domain, stations started playing it around Christmas and it kind of became a Christmas classic, like after the fact. Mm. Supply side economics. You tell the people Absolutely. what they want and they will want it. So <laughs> what a triumph of capitalism. It's yeah. a wonderful life. Uh, I saw this uh, actually, I've seen, I've seen this a few times, but I saw it on uh, the big screen in memphis tennessee i saw it at the old orpheum theater they like uh so it's like very old timey they do like an organ mm. interlude uh in the middle of it um uh, I, I i miss the days when they used to interrupt movies with with organs because yeah you know as we as we've determined on this podcast movies are bad right uh, right and uh 
you know, they need a little spicing up. All right. So uh, anyway, shall we shall we get into it, Ethan? Yeah. All right. You want to take us through the plot? Sure. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you you originally gave me the assignment of kind of owning the plot summary, which I was not happy about because this this plot is is dense. There's there's a lot that goes into it, including like three fourths of this two hour, 15 minute film is like leading up to the, the main element of the film. And so um, there's a lot of exposition to get through. Yeah, I was shocked by this because like as someone who hadn't seen it before, I've seen it parodied a lot, you know, like it, everyone kind of, even if you haven't seen this film, you know, like the premise and like, so I'm expecting that like, you know, that like fantastical part of the movie that really is just like the last like 30 minutes or something. Yeah. Like, uh, and I just couldn't believe like, oh, it's like, oh, this is actually just like somebody's life story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then this yeah. weird little fantasy ending. But like, yeah, the pacing was completely uh, other than what I expected. Yeah. Like they saw Citizen Kane. They're like, that's it. Let's just do a film about a guy. But oh, sh- we got to do a Christmas thing. So they threw in Christmas at <laughs> the end. Yeah, Christmas um, doesn't come in for a long time either. You don't know it's Christmas, right? And like, even even then, it's like very like ancillary to what is actually going. Like things happen during December, so like Christmas is tangentially happening, but it's not very much a Christmas film until the very end, when like suddenly, like everyone's like, "Oh, but, but, but Merry Christmas, everybody!" Like everyone's just really excited. And like talking about Christmas, but it's like they forgot until the last day of shooting to to think about like the the Christmas market. So the, you sort of yeah. get a lot of it at the end. Yeah, it's kind of funny because like everyone always like makes this stupid joke about how like Die Hard is the best Christmas movie, and hmm. you know like that's kind of a lame joke to make at this point. But the idea is them. like that that's being like oh well like you know Die Hard isn't really a Christmas movie because it just happens to take place during Christmas but like It's a Wonderful Life is presumably the like ultimate Christmas movie <laughs> and like also just kind of it just kind of happens to culminate on Christmas and I mean there are thematics about like which we'll get into about like you know sure. giving receiving uh, such uh, oh, God God. <laughs> God exists in this fictional universe is uh is pretty interesting uh but anyway let's uh let's jump in yeah so we we do start with this kind of uh like religious-y element to it where like that you hear a bunch of prayers and of course it's have you ever seen the movie contact yeah yeah so you know like the beginning of the film was like all the radio signals like going across Mm -hmm. the 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 milky way it's like that but instead of like aliens receiving them like angel galaxies receive them Mm -hmm. uh and so all the prayers go up into outer space and the angel galaxies uh, are like oh yeah everyone's talking about george bailey and i just gotta say like again as a first time viewer like spoiler alert like i know (laughs) the premise of the movie is this guy is like considering killing himself and like the fact that the movie starts with like seemingly an entire town praying for the guy like it like it like kind of gives away like obviously he is a loved guy actually like like it's yeah. not a secret right yeah uh yeah i mean like uh and so so the um galaxy angels conspire to save one george bailey 
Um, the, they bring forth his guardian angel, Clarence, by voice only at this point. And Clarence asks, well, is he sick? And he says, no, worse. He's discouraged. Um, that was actually fun. I laughed at that line. No, it's very good. So there's, and there's, there's lots of like good little quips throughout this. Most of them by uh, the problematic character, Annie. But uh, like, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's well done in that regard. But they seemingly do this opening to be like, okay, now, like, here we go with the like 25 years of life summary of the person, George Bailey, to like make you want to care about this character. So for the next mm. hour and a half, here we go. Like, let's have various vignettes of the life of George Bailey, starting with uh, when he was a kid. I forget. Is the premise is them being like wanting to catch Clarence up on who George Bailey is, right? Yeah, it's like, so you yeah. understand, like you're being sent to keep this man from killing himself. Right. And he otherwise uh, wouldn't so you, care. He'd be like, why the fuck yeah. do I care about this dude? You, you need to understand like what 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 makes him tick. Yeah. You know, so, you can't just be coming in there with like vague pronouncements about like the value of life in general. Right. <laughs> uh, which is good because uh, George Bailey, like there's a, there's a, you know, a lot of reasons why he should live and should have lived. Um, Cause otherwise what's this all about? <laughs> um, so uh, we go back to when George was a kid. Um, they're playing on the ice at the lake. Uh, his brother Harry falls in through the ice, um, and George helps rescue him. Which I guess the what you get out of that later is that like literally none of the other children would have helped his brother <laughs> had George not been there. Uh, so good thing George was there to organize the rescue. He he gets everyone to pull him out, but he does catch a cold. And loses hearing in his left ear. Um, so I feel like that was always happening to people in like <laughs> first half of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. I just want to expand on that. <laughs> okay. People who are always just like dying because they put on like a damp robe or something, <laughs> or they fell asleep with a window open. Right. Well, which happens later on in the film when George's daughter is let home from school by that that terrible teacher that lets her not wear her jacket and she immediately catches a cold and is sick. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, is it influenza? It's like, well, it's the 40s, so I guess it's like that. Yeah. Yeah, so, so then we go to another scene where now George is working at Gower's drugstore uh, and that's where all the girls in town go to ogle at him. Uh, mm. Like all the various like 12 year olds that are also in love with him. There's Violet and Mary, <laughs> I guess, are the two yeah. two characters. Um, he's pushing the uh, the coconut topping really hard on the yeah, ice yeah. cream. <laughs> he's got some product to move. Um, Mary's playing sort of hard to get, whereas Violet is like, I'm I'm going to marry him one day. I'm going to yeah. whisper in his his not working ear that I'm going to marry you someday. So yeah, there's like a very much there's like a like like uh, like Madonna and the whore kind of dichotomy <laughs> happening with these two characters. Like, yeah, like uh, like the one is always just basically like throwing herself at him and and uh, uh, and it's implied as kind of like disreputable. And then Mary mm -hmm. is just like kind of like the perfect, you know, the chaste woman. Yeah. So anyways, they're children and they're getting uh, um, 
root beer floats or whatever ice cream um, ice cream with coconut man ice cream with coconut and uh mr gower's son had died of influenza he got like a, a telegraph about it so he got drunk and was like sad um and the the result of that is like he fucked up a drug order for some kid he accidentally threw in some giant pills that were marked poison into the kid's advil prescription and you realize it just a giant white jug that says poison (laughs) on it and it's like facing the camera and then like george young george turns it around And so George realizes that something is amiss. So he doesn't do the delivery. Mr. Gower is not happy, but then realizes he fucked up. He's like, oh, thanks, George. Uh, Now I won't go to jail for 20 years. Um, So George did another thing. It's like, it's literally like George's greatest hits. Um, (laughs) We jump ahead to George graduating high school. I guess he did literally nothing of value between uh, that scene and graduating high school. Worthless fuck. And now he uh, wants to go travel the world. But his dad is like, well, what if you stayed and did the building and loan business that I created? What if you did the family business? Mm -hmm. Uh, And George doesn't want to because he wants to get out of Bedford Falls. He wants to go see the world. Yeah, that's like his primary motivation throughout this, right? It's like he's always got these like brochures and posters of different places. He kind of reminds me of uh, Truman from The Truman Show. (laughs) Uh, like, you know, it's like these characters who are kind of trapped in these idyllic small towns whose only desire is like to explore. Yeah. Uh, which means like the plot again and again uh, stops him from from doing that exploration. We're introduced uh, like a lot of stuff. He we're introduced to the character of Annie, who's kind of, you know, she is the help for the Baileys. Her job is to say various side quips throughout the film mm-hmm. as needed and for like to be involved in various problematic scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We should say she's, she's an African-American woman and is, yeah. and is definitely like, kind of like, you know, not the most ludicrously racist depiction I've ever seen, but it's definitely, it's kind of like the, the vestiges of like, you know, some of like the earlier sort of like minstrel character stereotypes I think are still like kind of, in the film via this character. Yeah. Uh, we're formally introduced to Mr. Potter, who really wants to shut down the building and loan place because he's an evil banker guy. Uh, he's the most powerful man in the county. Um, and yeah, I mean, from there during this whole thing, like we, he's, like I said, George is graduating high school. They go to a high school dance, right? This is still George graduating high school when this happens, right? Maybe it's his I brother graduating. I was so confused by this scene. <laughs> like, I, I, like, the entire time I was like, okay, it's a high school graduation. No, it's a college graduation. Because part of the confusion is they have Jimmy Stewart playing him from age, like, <laughs> yeah, 18 that's... to age, like, 40. Is this where the trope of having 40-year-olds play high schoolers came from? Because, like, it's know, very... Like very off-putting how like they're all playing high schoolers but they're very much not yeah but and it's like a very fancy graduation like everyone's in tuxedos i don't know if that's what high school graduations were like in in the 40s or or, well i guess this wasn't this was in like the 20s right uh yeah uh, the film comes out in the 40s but i think it's like class of 1928 but i was like very confused by like (laughs) who's in college who's in (laughs) high school like, you know, you're, you're being told this this 38-year-old man, uh, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, uh, uh, is, is like, 
18 or something. I, I, at this point I was just like, okay, somebody's graduating. There's a party. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yep. Uh, white people dancing awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doing the, like the Charleston, Charleston. All the, like, yeah. All the, uh, yeah. the classic dances. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart at one point does the thing with like the, you know, the, the knees and like moving his hands back and forth. Yeah. It's like yeah. a parody. Yeah. So they do that. The school has decided to build the gym above a pool and there's a button you press that like makes the floor retract and the pool that they i guess they leave filled with water is below the gym and so um because jimmy stewart is dancing with mary we've got sam wainwright who like really likes mary uh but you know george is dancing with her so sam decides to retract the floor to the pool and so then they're Swimming, blah dee da, like everybody jumps George, in. Yeah, everyone jumps in, including the principal. Um, and they eventually George and Mary leave and like go. He's like yeah. walking her back. We, to we her should place. also say, like, it's it is the class of 1928, right? So it's like like it like we are literally at like the last possible moment of the Roaring Twenties. Everyone's just like, ah, jump in the pool. Nothing yeah. bad is going to happen, for example one year from now <laughs> <laughs> uh but for for then everything is gravy and so they they have a good time and uh george walks mary back uh to her house um this is where you have the scene where it's like well, what, what, what do you want mary you want the moon I'll, I'll give you the moon and he's like you know doing the whole moon bit um yeah with like the last of the, the lasso, lasso you know, one of the here. famous yeah. lines right yeah yep <laughs> Uh, which like it's almost like Mary understands that it's a famous line because she later like stitches that scene. <laughs> yeah. So. Like, oh yeah, you know, I, I need a, I need an etching of your famous quote from the movie <laughs> Wonderful Life. Uh, I mean, uh, credit to the movie for calling its own shot. <laughs> yeah. uh, at that becoming an iconic line, right? Like, yeah. It it understood marketing and. Um, so, so they're walking back and they're having this whole line, uh, like random neighbor dude is like, you should kiss. Like they're, they're about to like kiss, but then various hijinks happen, which includes like her robe coming off and then like awkward, like Jimmy Stewart be like, well, what do I do in this situation? Um, yeah, like weird, weird, uh. Sexual harassment for yeah uh, for yeah she's like give me my robe back he's like I don't know it's like okay um so that didn't age well speaking of didn't age well George's father has a stroke um (laughs) and uh, (laughs) that that scene is interrupted with uh uh you know some folks finding him and 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 announcing like hey you got to come home it's your father so. George is precluded from uh, leaving uh, town because uh, his his father has a very plot convenient stroke uh, and passes away. So uh, George decides to stay in Bedford Falls. Um, he takes over the family business. We have that scene where like the board is deciding what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he's and- kind of like he's ushered. He's kind of ushered. Uh, the company through like this three month transitional period after his father's death. 
and then he wants to leave. Yep. Right. But then, um, uh, yeah, we get this boardroom scene. Yeah. Mr. Potter, evil banker guy wants to vote because he has voting shares. I guess he hasn't yeah. like been able to control the building mm-hmm. alone, but he has like shares. So he's like, I vote to shut it down. Um, he wants to be the only game in town because he has mm-hmm. he's a slum lord he wants to just be the only guy who can uh give out loans uh and like right before that before george leaves the room so the board can vote on this he gives a whole like rousing speech about like decency and how his his dad gave money to the rabble um and so the board agrees to keep the building alone business open so long as george stays as the executive secretary so george can't leave town uh because he's a he's a dumb piece of shit and gave this like great speech that uh screwed up his plans to Mm -hmm. get out of bedford falls so that's what you get uh so he stays on he gives his brother i mean that's why we try to do a bad job on the podcast each week so we can like tried so hard uh and mostly succeeded uh so (laughs) So he stays, he gives his college money to brother Harry, uh, to, to his brother Harry. <laughs> to uh, brother Harry. To brother Harry. <laughs> You're uh, like uh, Mike Love talking about cousin Brian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he gives his, his college money to his brother Harry, uh, and Harry became a football star, made a second team All-American as the I Angels like that they didn't us. make it first team All-American. It's believable. Uh, but, you know, this was, you know, this really tells you a lot about sort of like the political and racial ideology of this movie, right? Because like, it's like, this is like the last time in history where <laughs> a completely like unassuming, not particularly athletic looking short white guy could be like one of the like 10 greatest football players in the world, <laughs> you know, because, because, uh, any anyone that's actually good at sports has been systemically banned from participating in them. Yeah. Let the good times roll. Um, what do my notes say now? Oh, yeah. We immediately just cut to like, okay, we did the, the Harry. We mentioned that he went to college. Now Harry comes back from college. Mm-hmm. And he, he's surprised married somebody. And his father-in-law offered him a job in like literally anywhere but Bedford Falls, New York. Um, oh. So well, George it's, is still fucked. Yeah, it's in it's a glass like, it's, company. So like, yeah, glad, glad it doesn't research. pay a lot of money apparently, but she's like, but excellent opportunities. And I'm like, what is this job? What is he researching? Just like nuke? <laughs> is he going to research like the glass they use in Squid Game or something? <laughs> like, see, I was wondering, is it was almost to me setting it up as like the contrast of uh, it's like him versus Sam Wainwright of like he's researching glass, whereas Sam is investing in plastic. <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is that time in history, right? It's like all about like the big question is like it's the post-war capitalism's booming. We're gonna build lots of shit. We're gonna make lots of shit. But what are we gonna make it out of? Right? Did you pick the right thing? <laughs> Hope you didn't pick steel, motherfucker. <laughs> um. So, uh, it's not quite the war, but uh, prior to that, George decides to marry Mary. You following me? Mary, yeah, Mary. Yeah, yeah. So wait, who he's marrying, but who's he marrying? Mary, Mary. 
Your, your, I know your speech impediment's coming out. I don't want to embarrass you in the pod, but like, who does he marry? <laughs> not Violet. He marries. Oh no! Not oh, Violet. he doesn't marry Violet. Okay, he I doesn't it. marry Violet. So he marries Mary. Important. I understand. Great. She just said that. <laughs> um, and they have a bunch of kids. Uh, because like Mary came back, uh, because she's a failed child that like just went to college and was like, I, I missed home. I'm gonna yeah, die yeah. in Bedford Falls. So she's there. <laughs> Um, this movie is just full of people who just have a huge heart on for dying in the place they live. <laughs> that's basically what this movie is. It's yeah, like, it's America. What if baby? you never did anything? <laughs> yeah. So they get married um, on their way to their honeymoon. There's a run on the bank. Is this supposed to be like 1929? Like 19? Is this supposed to be like the? It can't be because like that's yeah because it's four like, years he graduates after high school in 1928 yeah I believe. so like the great depression isn't specifically alluded to i think maybe that's some of the subtext of what's going right. on with like the struggles of the company that lead him to staying on so i think the implication is like he's he's ushered the company through the great depression maybe but like uh but like maybe like but like bank runs are just still something that's happening. Like I guess yeah. maybe we're still we're just still in the Great Depression right now. Um, sure. Because like so World War II hasn't started yet or anything. And like right. But like so when it happens, like people know what a bank run is. It's like, oh, that's like when that's a thing that happens. Yeah. Right? They're like, oh shit, the bank run is happening. So let's all go to the building and loan and take out our money. Uh, so everyone goes to the building and loan because the other bank in town, there's a run on the bank. So they're like, Oh, we got to get our money out of here. Um, uh, and the problem is that, you know, they obviously don't have the money to give them because they mm -hmm. loan out the money for people to buy houses that they shouldn't be able to afford. Yeah. And, um, and, and there's this great, there's this great, like, like mini speech where like Jimmy Stewart is like explaining the concept of like, of like uh like equity and houses and stuff he's like you see the money is like in the buildings <laughs> and like <laughs> we are collectively producing value that has not actually been actualized but like will be actualized at some point in the future so he's like you, you're you're thinking of this place all wrong as if i had the money back in a safe the, the money's not here well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house and Mrs. Maitland's house and a and hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do? Foreclose on them? <laughs> yes. The answer is everyone's yeah, no, that's like, what they're yeah, do. that's what it takes. Yeah. So everyone decides they're going to foreclose on one another. Um, but then George convinces them, uh, or rather Mary has the idea to, of using the honeymoon money to pay everybody just what they need to get by so that the uh, building and loan uh, place can stay open. Uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Potter had this plan to like buy everyone out at 50 cents on the dollar, like make an easy buck, but it doesn't work because everyone stays and they did it. And so definitely a long-term solution. Um, so that happens. They make it through. We keep advancing through the timeline. Um, Cause again, Clarence just needs a overview of this guy's life. George makes Bailey Park kind of uh, self egregious, but you know, what are you going to do? Uh, it apparently has like good homes. They even opened it up to Italians. Yeah. Yeah. My man, Martini. Giuseppe I, Martini. The Martini most... is my favorite character. 
He owns a bar called Martini's. <laughs> His name is Martini. And he's just like, he he's he's just like walking around like being Italian. Like, uh, I love it. Yeah, he is. He is very Italian. Um, so they sell a, a home even to him. And uh, Mr. Potter doesn't like that George is messing up his whole slum operation. So he's like, I'm going to pay you $20,000 a year to work for me. Uh, Cause he wants to buy him out of the way. So that's not a problem, but George doesn't agree to it. Cause George is a man of principles, which will not serve him. Well, it will drive him to suicide. Um, and so the plot relentlessly continues. George and Mary have a bunch of children. World war two happens. Everyone does their like patriotic thing, mm-hmm. which of course you can't send a man to war if his ear is fucked up. So George stays home. Yeah, because then how are you going to deafen him if he's already <laughs> deaf, right? Like, how yeah. are you going to give him like crippling, you know, long term medical problems? Yeah, there's no fun already... in that. Yeah. So he stays home and like leads the war effort from home. Uh, but his brother Harry does get the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor for mm-hmm. stopping uh, a kamikaze from blowing up a transport ship. Yeah. Um, or so they say. Uh, <laughs> so I can't wait um, for loose chains too <laughs> about the, uh, the, the kamikaze plane that George Bailey's <laughs> brother was, shot down. It was a 747 filled with like 300 Japanese civilians. <laughs> Various um, VIPs. <laughs> yeah, Ask yourself, yeah. who was on the flight manifest? <laughs> the U.S. military didn't do that till much later, so that's not fair to them. Uh, so, yeah, up until uh, this point, America had only ever done good things, right? Which is crazy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so everyone does a good war. Uh, and they come home. Hey, from it's the, the war. good war that hey. we can uh, we can uh, now justify every yeah. other war, present and past and future, by allegorization to this one that was kind of good because the enemy <laughs> was the worst guy ever. Oh, don't you love when it's just unambiguous like that? Um, so the good guys all come home from war, and uh, immediately. After that, Uncle Billy fucks things up. Yeah. He like has eight thousand dollars from the. Which I looked up. That's over a hundred thousand dollars in current money. So we like we can all relate to going to the bank with a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> in cash uh, to deposit and then losing it because yeah. we're like just sloppy. Yeah. Well, he's like clowning on Potter. <laughs> yeah. And then he yeah. accidentally like gives him the money basically <laughs> like because he like takes his newspaper but then he like puts the money in his newspaper and we and we should because we haven't talked about uncle billy much but he's been established at this point in the film to be like a drunk and yeah. like, kind of like you know not all not all together not the right. sharpest the sort of guy that has a he has a pet crow like that sort of guy mm-hmm. like, that's his thing and everyone's just like accepted it uh, yeah, he, he fucks up and like loses the $8,000. Uh, and it's just as the bank inspector is coming in. And also importantly, it's almost Christmas time. So. (laughs) 
Zoom is trying so hard to cancel out your horn noise. It's like, that's not a human voice. It's not how humans sound. Um, so, uh, yeah, so George gets increasingly despondent. He, like, yells at his wife and his kids. He it's yells very at- sudden, too. Like, he starts, yeah. like, the performance is... I mean, this is, like, a melodramatic film, so it's, like, very... Because, like, he's been the most aw shucks man of all time up to this point. <laughs> and then he just becomes a huge dick immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I actually like. I actually like that about the film because I like that it, it it is kind of saying in that, that like no matter how aw shucks you are, when, when like the actual material realities of capitalism like come for you, like, like it's over. Like he seemingly has finally gotten to the point where he can't gee whiz himself out of uh you know the inevitable yeah. uh progress and, and as most as most people do under the structure of capitalism he immediately goes to mr potter the banker and is like i'm gonna sell out everything and everyone if you could just <laughs> give me a loan give me eight thousand dollars and then i literally don't care i just don't want to go to jail Mr. Potter's like, well, I'm not going to do that. And I'm also going to have you arrested because I know all the police and the congressmen and they work for me because I'm the banker guy. Um, So Mr. Potter actually turns George down. But Mr. Potter does help George come to the astute realization that he is actually worth more dead than alive because of his life insurance policy. (laughs) You're worth more dead than alive. Oh, baby. So now, like, we get sort of where the film had began with a suicidal George. He he crashes his car into one of the oldest trees in town. Can you believe it? There were no, yeah. there was literally no trees in that town before that guy's grandfather planted them. Can, can I just make, like, not to be all, like, plot holes in It's a Wonderful Life, right? But with this guy, this drove me crazy. <laughs> so like and this is jumping ahead a little bit uh but this guy that, that he, he says in this moment like my great grandfather planted this tree it's the oldest tree in town right <laughs> and the town is called bedford falls when we go jumping ahead a little and then we'll go back but when we go into the alternate reality where the town has the name has changed to pottersville yeah. right because like because potter has taken the town completely over yeah. right he runs into this same man, uh, you know, and talks about the tree. And he's like, talks about being in Bedford Falls. And he, and that man is like flabbergasted. He's like, what are you talking, Bedford, what the hell? We're in Pottersville. <laughs> and it's like, this man is like, the, it was called, even in the alternate reality, the town was called Bedford Falls before Potter took it over and changed the name. Like, so like this man of all men, like, why is he act like he should just be like, oh, you haven't been here for a while. Like, <laughs> it's called Pottersville now. But as the historian of the town who knows where all the oldest trees are, I'm familiar with the fact that it used to be called Bedford Falls. This is where you're wrong, because he's not interested so much in the history as the progression of history. So what makes the tree interesting? It's not that his dumb fuck grandfather planted the tree. <laughs> it's that it has persisted over time. What matters now is that the town is called Pottersville. And so <laughs> this asshole comes in here and starts calling it Bedford Falls. That's, you know, negating progression. And that's oh, why he was God. so angry. Is, you should have understood. We're on to that Hegelian shit now. Is he the same <laughs> guy that tells them to kiss? 
I don't know, but let's they just look say similar, yes. But it, let's yeah. say yes, because that would completely make sense with this reading of him, because he's telling them a kiss because he's like the procreation guy. He's like, <laughs> new generation, have- let's go. He's the accelerationist <laughs> of Pottersville. Like, like, like fucking like bring on the like collapse of society. I'm going to be here with my tree. Like, uh yeah. Like the uh, your tall gives our official endorsement to the accelerationist philosophy of tree guy from Miss <laughs> a Wonderful Life. Uh, I mean, can't get much better than that, but the plot does progress to the point where, um, this is like where the film was sort of starting. Uh, the uh, the suicidal George, he he wants to jump off a bridge and commit suicide for that life insurance policy. Um, this is literally an hour and 39 minutes into the film. So if any of you are like, wow, y'all have been taking a long time going through this plot. It, it, we have covered almost the entire film at this point. So it's not mm. that we were nitpicking little details. Like the film is mostly various vignettes of George's life and why mm. like, he's a good guy. And that's why he shouldn't commit suicide, not for like other reasons. So yeah. Yeah, we've established that George is a good guy who has done good deeds. And uh, so now we get to the point where he's going to commit suicide and shouldn't. So thank goodness we have Clarence the Angel who shows up, preemptively attempts to commit suicide before George by jumping off the bridge. Uh, And so George jumps off instinctively to save Clarence. He just can't stop doing good. (laughs) Can't stop. Um, so he saves George that like, I don't know. It's like a Brit. Who is this guy? Like a bridge <laughs> operator? Is it a drawbridge? I'm not sure. I don't know. Like, He's like a bridge guy or a ferryman <laughs> or something is just in the room for a while. Yeah. And he eventually fucks off when he's like, right. Well, there's some like biblical shit happening here. I got to get yeah. out of here. I mean, he got, we don't see it on screen, but he gets the note that like his job has been like made redundant and no longer exists in post-war America. So that was actually him just like fucking off to having no um, actual future. So yeah, we automated the bridge, buddy. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Hey, good news. There's no social safety net. (laughs) Actually, there is. There is a little bit. There's a little bit. There's a little bit of one now. There's a little bit. We're in 1946. There's a little bit. You did invest in plastics, right? (laughs) Um. So yeah, yeah. Clarence explains that he's an angel. Um, George doesn't believe him. Clarence is like, well, I'm an angel second class. So good to know that there's a hierarchy up in heaven. Um, yeah, no, heaven is like depicted in this as like like a a like middle mid-century US like bureaucracy, like kind of corporation thing. Sounds like heaven to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh <laughs> Paradise Um, by the fluorescent light. (laughs) So anyways, you know, you know, George is sort of incredulous. One, that he doesn't think this person is an angel, but second, that this is his guardian angel. Um, So he just wishes, George wishes that he hadn't been born. I suppose it would have been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Um, And Clarence is like, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, that'll do it. Let me, that'll let me show you. What happens? Would have been really awkward if like George hadn't lived a great life and things were like better. 
Um, but they're not because he was he had done good things. And again, that's why mm. that's why he shouldn't commit suicide is because he had done great deeds. Um, and so they take him through like, here's how life would have been had you not been born. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. I mean, to start off, Martinis is now Nick's. <laughs> <laughs> There's no more delightful Italian man. Yeah. yeah. You know, with like meatballs in his pocket. Yeah. I think the biggest theme is that jazz has taken over Bedford Falls. <laughs> <laughs> or should I call it Potterville? It's, it's so true. It's, yeah. And it's like, I want to talk about this later, but it's very racialized. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like the the first shot really we get of this like new bar is of a of a black man playing the piano. Yeah. Uh, and he's playing kind of like a ragtime kind of thing or something. I don't, you know, if you know the jazz micro genres, don't yell at me. But it's like, you know, it's like some kind of like, you know, like kind of kind of like, you know, raunchy jazz music on the piano. Yeah. And, the, and the, what the film is trying to tell you is like, this is like morally degraded or something. Yeah. But it's yeah. like very, you know, it's like now like blackness is no longer confined to like the maid with like one liners um martini would have never allowed this yeah and then he tries to yeah martini you just had a man with an accordion (laughs) and a monkey and he was respectful (laughs) but you know when like you know it's like seems like a fine bar like yeah like a no you know fine time yeah. yeah but uh uh like shit gets weird when they come in there and start talking about religion as it often does but he runs out of this, like the, like the Nick space has become weirdly like, cause like martinis is racialized in like the Italian American sense of like, you know, like, uh, like ethnic white, like not quite integrated, you know, but the, but like Nick's is like a, is a, not that Nick is black, but that, that is a space where like blackness is permitted in a way it's not permitted in the rest of the movie. Yeah. But then, so they run out and he like runs out into the town. Right. And as you've said, like, it's like, the jazz continues like the score <laughs> becomes like this like intense jazz and there's like marquees everywhere and there's like strip clubs and stuff uh and the idea yeah. is like this is this is a bad thing that people are listening to black music now instead of yeah. the, the uh you know the, the 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 kind of austere classical score yeah violet is getting arrested you have george taking a taxi um with the, the funny it's thing either is Bert they, or Ernie. Yeah, that's the funny thing is they're, they're named Bert and Ernie. The uh, cop the one and is, the taxi guy. Yeah, classic. And they somehow have this, they have this weird friendship. Like, <laughs> like they're like a team. Yeah. Like, like the taxi guy picks people up and then it then like signals <laughs> to the cop to arrest them. Like, hey, this guy looks off. How about you follow me? Um, yeah, so they do that, and George is like not into getting arrested i guess so he runs to which bert who has just been accosted by george just starts shooting indiscriminately into like the crowded street yeah and he's not even aiming he's just like (laughs) firing wildly there are many people out and about enjoying the jazz and he is just (laughs) and the guy like hasn't committed any serious crimes at this point he's mostly like shoved him confused and a little weird and like yeah he's just like yeah there's lots of uh i mean that that is another point of the film is actually being very realistic i know like it really took me out of the fantasy (laughs) that moment it was like oh well there we go um so 
the big the big thing is though besides the jazz george finds out that like all these other things are changed like harry harry wasn't there to save the transport because harry died because george didn't save him from the water because none of the yeah. other people there were willing to save yeah harry. and also like it's like the the fucking like this film has no understanding of like the like like you compare this to a film like a like a, what is that guy's name the Ashton Kutcher film the butterfly effect right but it's like this film it's like George didn't exist but everything happened exactly the same <laughs> as it did except for George was it, so like they're still playing that exact same day the ice still breaks exactly that same way right like it's a very like limited um uh understanding of what changes like reality is very stable and you just subtract george out of it right well it's almost like a like pre, it's very like calvinist almost you know it's like a mm-hmm. predestination sort of deal is yeah sort yeah. of i think the the theme yeah. it's there. very like pre-chaos theory yes like yeah but the general idea is that things are worse off including the worst news of all mary is an old maid she's a librarian she's a librarian <laughs> this I lost my shit at this because <laughs> the film, this is literally, it's not, you're joking with saying it's worse off, but the film presents it as if it is because it's the last revelation. It's like people are dead. Like that kamikaze pilot killed all these brave men on the destroyer. Jazz is playing everywhere you go. But like, my God, Mary is a librarian. She's wearing glasses now. <laughs> I actually thought she looks much better, but she that's just me. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's like apparently, like, you know, what happens in this town is because we've had no indication Mary is interested in being librarian up to this point, but apparently just what happens is like no one marries you and you just become yeah. a librarian. Which right. doesn't even make sense because again, like like sam was interested in her and like she seemed interested in sam enough that except she likes george more so like i don't know why in the world where george doesn't exist she wouldn't have like found someone else but again it's like this calvinist thing it's like he is like they're destined to be together so there's no other possibilities for her except for being can you imagine a worse fate for a woman than being a librarian it's hard it's hard to think of one Shushing um, people all day. <laughs> the Dewey Decimal System. My God. Um, She's wearing like a matronly hat and coat <laughs> that doesn't show off her vivacious curves. <laughs> what a tragedy. It's, it is a real tragedy. And that's really what puts George over the edge. Except, I guess, yeah. like the opposite of that, because it puts him not over the edge of reality. No, my brother's dead. That's not so good. Oh, she's a librarian. <laughs> a librarian? Hey, with the books? That doesn't make any sense. The so, me late freeze. <laughs> so, so he decides that that's what puts him over, again, over not the edge, because he doesn't want to go over the edge of the bridge anymore. But he's like... I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. He wants to go back, back across the edge. Yes. And um, Bert shows up, but suddenly Bert knows who he is. Hey, George. And so that's that's how he knows he's back. Because Bert knows his name. Uh, and so he's like, I'm back. 
So everything's fine now. He's like, I got to get home. Um, so he runs back home. He sees that he has crashed the car. Great. Fuck that tree. He goes <laughs> back home. And he, <laughs> I want to know your take on this. Because he walks into his house where he is met by the detective and the bank inspector and like two other guys some of the press are there yeah the press because they're like taking photos with those old cameras that light up so so just to be clear these four men let themselves into (laughs) his house while his wife was out and just their children were upstairs and were just waiting in the like welcoming room for him to return is that the premise yeah so yeah exactly and like i don't know how realistic that is in the sense of like did this shit actually happen but this does remind me of other like 1940s fiction like like a much more serious and good work but native son by richard wright Mm. right like after uh mary dalton has been murdered like like the, the press are just like in the house Wow. It's like a very different than like we think of like, you know, contemporary films where like the press are always like gathered outside and like not allowed in the house. But like, like, like uh, it's very important because like, like, uh, like uh, the main character of Native Son, Bigger Thomas, like sees a photograph being taken like in the house and then like runs and then he sees the, the photograph in the newspaper later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this big moment where he realizes like how the press and like the the cops are all working together essentially. But like, I felt, I got like, obviously the tone of It's a Wonderful Life is very different, but it seems like it's like a similar vision of sort of like, you know, just like these people are all like in the room. Like, yeah. but I don't, I don't know if that has like, I don't know if that happens in the forties because that's what people did. Or if that's like just the fictional conventions of the forties were like right you know, devoted to like, okay, we have to have these different like segments of society represented in the room so we can like, and they were let maybe less concerned with the idea of like realism or like what would really happen than like yeah. having these representative figures. But I don't know. If someone knows, let us know. Yeah. Great. Um, but, you know, the thing that happens then is then uh, Mary comes home uh, and it's like, it's a miracle. It's a miracle, George. Uh, and what happens is everybody in town heard that George was in trouble and we're like, well, let's just, we'll give him money. And so they have all of the money to, um, like it's just the bank inspector to be like, it's okay. We have the money. So don't worry about it. So Mm -hmm. like everybody from town that he had helped throughout the film shows up and puts more money in. You know how it is when you steal something and then like the cops show up and then you're like, oh, but here it is. You can have it back. Yeah. And they're like, ah, oh, no worries. Yeah, everything's cool. Um, Annie shows up to say, I've been saving this money for a divorce in case I ever get a husband. She had to get had to get one more line for Annie in there. Yeah. So, and all of her um, lines are about like how shocking it would be if she had a husband. Yeah, it's not great. Um so even the bank inspector pitches in at the end uh, mm-hmm. and the detective rips up the warrant because that's <laughs> how the law works. <laughs> I was um, like, I was watching it and I was like, okay, but that cop is about to be like arrested. For, like, <laughs> destroying like a, like, like, like a warrant. Like, I don't think, I don't think like the cop serving the warrant has the prerogative to be like, well, forget about this one. So, 
everyone pitches in and uh then harry shows up uh because he's coming in for the big parade because he got the congressional medal of honor and, he's and alive. he says uh, he what and yeah he's, he's alive. alive so harry comes in he says to my big brother george the richest man in town <laughs> and what he means by that is that he physically has all this money in a basket now so he is technically the richest man in town i think that's the the message yeah no i don't think there's any subtext like he has like a big pile of like eight thousand that's a lot of money yeah like it's a it is a good amount yeah uh and and then uh he gets a note (laughs) from clarence that says remember no man is a failure who has friends thanks for the wings love clarence and i think there's a copy of like the adventures of tom sawyer yeah which he earlier in the in the during the like when the galaxies are talking he's like references that he's reading tom sawyer yeah which i guess that's supposed to be the idea is that like he was alive i guess right like oh i thought it was that mark twain is alive in heaven because he mentions at one point he's writing he's like you should see what he's writing now it's okay yeah but like there's jokes also when he's in the bar where he's trying to order like mold wine and stuff there's like these jokes that he has like these tastes that are like not contemporary i guess yes yeah so um yeah that's the film he's he's the richest man in town and we never see potter again which is interesting to me because this right. is like he kind of one ups Potter, but like Potter doesn't show up to be owned or anything. It's just like no. big party. Everyone sings like uh, whatever it's called, Odd Long Sing or whatever. Yeah, Odd Long uh, Sign. Odd Long Sign. I do not know the name of like that. That's like the that's like the New Year's song. Do I look like a New Year's guy to you? There's this. Like, there's I three New, New Year's songs. There's Odd Long Sign. There's Imagine, but where CeeLo Green replaces Imagine No Religion with like, imagine all religions groovy. Um, <laughs> and then there's um, New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. Sorry, right. I only watched the Times Square uh, New Year's Eve, rockin' New Year's Eve. So that's yeah. that's Well, my... that's the, yeah, in general, that's the only thing you watch, which like, right. I don't yeah. know if the, the viewers realize this, but you haven't watched any of the movies that we talk about. No, like, I gained all my info from that. But again, this film really is like No, you the, have to watch like it's like you have to watch so many years of 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 like of the Rocket New Year's Eve to pick up enough <laughs> trivia about Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master cuz like <laughs> you know, obviously there's the year it comes out, there's going to be a few jokes about The Master. Right. But you're not going to get the full plot summary. You need to be watching every year that it's like it's the 2019 Rocket New Year's Eve. And Ryan Seacrest like comes in and is like, you know, oh, this reminds me of the scene where where they get sent to prison and uh, and Lancaster Dodd tells him he's you know, no one likes him except for him. Well, that's I mean, it's it's a well-known fact that Dick Clark was so moved by the master that he died. There's the mayor. Giuliani just told me downstairs a few minutes ago that he is looking forward to his new career. Of course, is the new mayor. Mayor Bloomberg will be sworn in in just a moment here when the quiet subsides. Actually, he's been sworn in three different times. And he sort of has his work cut out for him. 
Former Mayor Giuliani has been uh, christened the man of the year of a Time magazine. Mayor Bloomberg will uh, have to fill his shoes. He's certainly a man of great intelligence and fortitude. As they say, you don't get any leeway. And that's the damn fact. New York is a tough town. But tonight, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of New Year's Rockin' Eve. It's a grand tradition here. And thank you for letting us be a part of your celebration. There's a lot more parties still to go. Don't you dare go away. We're going to be right back here on ABC. Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve 2002 is being brought to you by Prescription Biots. Ask your doctor about Biots. So I guess one of the, the big questions we have to ask about this movie, because like it kind of it's doing some kind of critique of capitalism, right? Like its villain is the banker. He's kind of this Scrooge character. And apparently like part of why they cast him is like he was known for like having played like Scrooge in like the radio play versions of Christmas Carol that were popular at the time. Ah. And this movie does kind of have a it, it, it's borrowing some some stuff from from a Christmas Carol, right? Uh, it's kind of remixing them differently, but um, you know, but it, it clearly is trying to say something about I don't know about if capitalism in general, about at least certain elements of capitalism, but like right. I don't know if I'm comfortable saying this is like a socialist film or anything either. So I'm like I'm wondering like where you <laughs> where you land on this question. Yeah, I feel like. Having watched it years ago, I felt much more sympathetic to the idea that like, oh, it's more socialistic in nature, just just in the general themes of what it's saying around like communal support and things like that. Um, but I, I feel like you have to ground it in the fact that this was a film that is based on a book that came out in the early 40s. This, this mm -hmm. film came out in 1946. So uh, I think there is still... Um, optimism about American capitalism that exists, especially in like the mid forties uh, coming out of the great depression of like, well, we can, if we can really band together and like do X, Y, Z, uh, we can make this work. Things are going to work out just fine. So mm -hmm. it's not yeah. really to me a critique of capitalism so much as it's like someone who, this film to me is like the film version of someone who critiques capitalism, but then it's like, well, that's crony capitalism. I just don't like exactly. crony capitalism. Yeah. So that's, that seems to be like what the film is doing and trying to make, make some false distinction between the yeah. two. Yeah. This is where I think I land with it too, because it's like the big critique is that like Potter is a bad person. Right. And like, he's screwing everything up. And like, if just we had people like George in charge who believe in people and understand, you know, and da, da, da. but also like very racialized, right? Like we don't see George giving any houses to any, any of the black residents of the town who are only existing in like kind of subservient service labor positions. Or, or they would just bring uh, jazz. Yeah. <laughs> we do see him uh, formally, like we get this, like the, the scene, we talked about it, we referenced it a little bit, but like the scene where he sells the house to Martini is actually like, it's filmed very immensely. Like a lot of screen time is given to that. And there's this whole ceremony where they give them like bread, salt and wine as these like symbols of prosperity. Right. Yeah. And like, that is the scene of like, kind of like incorporating the Italian immigrant into like white American capitalism. Right. Yeah. And like, uh, and of course, like this is directed by Frank Capra, who was a Italian immigrant, like, you know, and this sounds like, you know, we, we've made some joking references to like Ben Shapiro's take on this movie. 
which is that like George is actually like the villain because like he's creating the conditions of the subprime mortgage crisis. What, uh, what do you think about that, Ben Shapiro? It is the ultimate Christmas movie. It's about forgiveness. It is about community. It's about the unseen contributions that we all make to the lives of the people around us. Now, also, Lionel Barrymore is correct. So on a financial level, the villain of this piece is actually the hero because if Jimmy Stewart actually gets his way, all of Bedford Falls collapses in the subprime mortgage crisis. Basically, Jimmy Stewart keeps giving out loans without proper checking into the credit history of the people he's giving loans to based on his sort of assessment of their own personal viability financially. Lionel Barrymore is much more by the numbers. Lionel Barrymore is a, a better banker and, and that local bank probably goes under. So the, the movie was supposed to be sort of a quasi-socialistic FDR parable, but the reality is that the real estate policies followed by Jimmy Stewart bankrupt Bedford Falls and everybody ends up homeless. But so like, here's the thing, like it's, I, I don't agree with Ben Shapiro, but he's not wrong in a certain sense in that like from the perspective of capitalism, Potter is not doing anything evil. He's doing what capitalism tells him he's supposed to do. Right. And so like the idea is that like we're supposed to have this system that compels people to, to do certain things, but that we're supposed to have these like ethical, magical individuals like George Bailey who like resist those compulsions and find like the happy medium. Hmm. And in that it's like basically it's like a it's advocating for some kind of like controlled capitalism based in regulation. It's like, it's like an FDR thing. Right. And it's like, sure. I mean, honestly, like I am very cognizant of the limitations of that, you know, seeing like, like what's going on with like the Joe Biden administration right now, it's hard not to be like, well, by comparison, that is a radical vision, but also that was a radical vision that was available at that moment in the history of capitalism. Right. And like, sure. you can't, it's not a matter of ideas. It's not just like, oh, if everyone believed we could do it again, we could do it. Yeah. But there's also this underwriting thing that I don't think is intentional from the film, which is the idea that if George Bailey wasn't there, everything would collapse at a much faster rate than it yes. had. And like the opportunities wouldn't exist. And so the, the idea is that the only way through which these opportunities to descend the ladder of, uh, like this capitalistic system is through just the pure happenstance of this altruistic individual who decides to put aside the profit motive in order to help yeah. create this future in spite of the fact that it's clearly difficult, it's prone to failure, uh, and perhaps without mm -hmm. divine intervention is doomed to failure. Yes, uh, yes. So I don't think that's like what the film was trying to say, but it is what it is saying. Yeah, no, I do think like, yeah, there's almost like against itself, there's almost a radical critique in this film, right? Because it shows the degree of like unrealistic intervention that is required to make this system work. Yeah. And like George Bailey has to be, he's like, he's like, Christ practically like he's he's like this perfect individual who has only done good things and what does it say that like this system leads to like absolute like horror and squalor unless you have someone like this in charge it, yeah th so there are there are some I think you know we can look at it through a lens of like 2021 looking back at this 1946 film and I think pick apart uh, some of the themes in a way that perhaps were not apparent to the audiences that made it such a staple of Christmas films throughout uh, mm -hmm. the last half century. 
Um, but uh, I have no problem with doing that. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing too is right. Like there's this big triumphant moment at the end where the town pulls together and gives all their money and saves the company. Right. And that feels really good. But here's the thing the film doesn't ask, like what if it happens again? <laughs> yeah. Like everyone has emptied their coffers. Right. So like, this is at best a delay. Right. Right. This is not a victory. This is like, like, like $8,000 has been lost, is in the hands of Mr. Potter. We've now emptied everyone's savings of another $8,000 to, you know, so the company won't fold again. And the company's always on the brink of collapse, right? Absolutely. And like, if we are reliant on, on individualistic critiques of, of the Potters of the world as being bad people, uh, you know, we're basically like if 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 our cell for communism and socialism has to be rooted in convincing a lot of people to act against their own self-interest, I don't know like where that goes. Cause because George is the ultimate person who's always acting against his own self-interest, right? Like he wants to go and he always decides to stay because it's the right thing for everyone else. Right. And well, like the problem is convincing people maybe to I mean not convincing people, but I don't know. The problem is like how do you create the realization of that it actually is in everyone's best interest to do something else. Right. Which is maybe again, the limits of what you can do in a film in 1946 in the United States of America, which is at least put the idea in people's heads like, Hey, the good guy is the guy that uh, is altruistic in spite of the fact that uh, he could be doing much better in this system if he was not that way. So maybe again, that's like the most you can do in that context um, to Mm -hmm. make it palatable, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, yeah. For, for you know, and that's the thing too, because like there's a version of critiquing this film that actually goes, it goes in the reactionary direction because it says like, oh, he's a patsy. And mm-hmm. then you get, you end up with like a film like American Psycho or like, you know, the kind of films of the eighties about the individualistic Reaganite financiers, right? Or Wall Street, right? Greed is good. Yeah. Like where the idea is like, oh, it's dumb and hokey. As this film kind of is, it's a dumb and hokey film, right? It's a cheesy film, but it's also kind of a heartfelt film. But, you know, it's dumb and hokey to look out for everybody else. Uh, So I need to look out for number one, right? That's the (laughs) smart thing to do. That's the realistic thing to do. Like Mark Fisher talks about this in the capitalist realism book, right? Like the the gritty realism of the financial guy uh, that like he actually knows how bad capitalism is. And that's why he has to look out for himself, Uh, not that Which, it has to be a him, but but the, the the cultural figure of the financier usually is. But so did you, I'm curious, like, did you find it, like, affecting at all? Or, like, did you just find it kind of, like, cheesy and, and like, you know, Capricorn, I think is the term some people use for this aesthetic that Frank Capra has? No, I mean, like, there's, there's heart to the film, you know? It's, like, I, I get why this is a classic um because like what better way to escape from the materialistic hellhole that is like the american christmas tradition than to like watch this film and like have a brief reprieve from that um that that overwhelming feeling of just consumerism so like i i I, and there were some lines that i think really stood out to me um that uh i was like 
yeah, this is like good on you. Like I, I felt good when George was standing up there and he's, he's talking about, uh, he's talking down Mr. Potter and saying, like, well, just you remember Mr. Potter, this, this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I like that line. That like that mm. sort of stuff was nice of like just the little asides just to like um, yeah. lay it out on I mean, the, the Mr. Product yeah. character. I mean, it feels good. Like, I think it would be, I think you would, I mean, it's a feel good movie. Like, I think it would, I think you would have to be, if you can let yourself like, just kind of get into the film, like it legitimately, like it it feels good to be like, oh yeah, like people can bend together. Like there is a, there's a utopian glimmer in this film, but like then it's very hard to uh, imagine it as more than a glimmer, I guess. But like I did, you know, I found it, I did find it like authentically touching at times uh as someone who hadn't seen it before right but again i didn't find it touching at, i feel like people will watch this film and be like look look at how things used to be this sense of community we had like that, this, yeah that's a this great real point. like coherence as a community that has now fallen apart uh that to me is a terrible reading of the film because because it is very much a fantasy which i know is is something that really uh, you, you mentioned as uh, sticking out to, to you from this film, the idea of like reality versus fantasy. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Like the, I think that's such a good point you made. Like if you're watching this film nostalgic for like the idea that what it's depicting in the first hour and a half was real, I don't, maybe that's what the film intends, right? But that's like the wrong way to read it, right? Spoiler alert, Bedford Falls, New York is not a real place. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, so we're clear. Yeah. The real fantasy, right, is the first part of the film. Hmm. It is a world in hmm. which this one man can buy his like guile and his aw shucksness and his good heartedness, like keep the forces of capital at bay, in which like everyone is sort of happy, in which um, everyone's kind of living, everyone's living hard lives but like with dignity and love and like you know like like and sort of in this idyllic state right and then the idea is that that is something that is lost in this alternate universe right um and and the alternate universe is like is the real world right it's the world in which capital cannot be defeated by individuals right and then the way the film and this is like maybe its most radical gesture is the way the film resolves this tension between reality and fantasy is with the power of the collective. Hmm. Like when the actual town comes together, they are able to make, they are able to kind of fuse the reality and the fantasy into one, right? And like the way to read this film to me is not like, I think if we want to read this film in a way that is like inspiring rather, like it's totally fine to read this film as like ideological hogwash, but if we want to have a positive reading of it, it can't be that like, oh, this film tells us about a collectivity that existed during the New Deal that has been lost, but it tells us that the actual only way to resolve our contradictions within existing capitalism is to produce a collectivity that does not yet exist. Also God. 
and God helps, right? <laughs> but but like you know, substitute God for communism, right? Like, uh, granted, there's there are still right? some clear hierarchies that exist in heaven uh, with these different classes of angels. But right, so it's he, Stalinism. That's fine. <laughs> he, he generally seems on board with the concept of helping the George Baileys of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think yeah, that is. Like if I'm going to take like, like, I think that's maybe why I find the film like touching is like, not that I'm like, oh yeah, in the forties, things were great Mm -hmm. and people cared about each other. But I'm like, if we could create that sort of collectivity. Right. And not just in terms of pooling our money together, but you know, more in terms of pooling our labor power together and like refusing to offer that labor power to capital, like there, that potentiality exists. That always exists in like a, like, physical sense no matter how bleak things are that there's technically the physical possibility that that could happen right and and i think maybe one of the uh failures of the film is that it can only conceptualize escape from the system as like accumulation of capital you know like it's well what if instead of what was going to happen martini was able to afford a home because he got a good deal on a mortgage what if this like, and it all comes back to just like the accumulation of capital, but um, in parallel to this more um, abjectly uh, uh, exploitative system? Uh, that's how mm-hmm. like it imagines the the ideal, you know. So For I sure, think there are, yeah. there's definitely some limitations there, but um, yeah. yeah, it goes back to that speech you quoted where he's like explaining how the savings and loan works, right? But that, mm-hmm. that's that's a capitalist enterprise. It's a collective yeah. one, but it's it's based on it's based on like you know capital accruing over time. And and it seems like there's a theme throughout this. It was like, well, what well, it's not, it's not. I'm not giving your money. It's it's a loan. Like he makes <laughs> that point so many times. Yeah, He's like, yeah. No, it's not charity. This is a loan. You need to pay me back. Yeah, it's a relationship. That it's a bond. It's dignity to you that it's a loan. That it's not charity because mm-hmm. like exactly. that, that there's yeah. like a reciprocal nature there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and like, as you, as you kind of alluded to, right, in the end, it's money is the medium through which the collectivity is able to materialize itself, literally in this pile of money, right? Money allows all these people from different walks of life who have different kinds of labor to offer to form this collective force. And and so like as much as there's a radical potentiality in that idea of collectivity the fact that it can only imagine itself through the money form is is a is a limitation absolutely uh, and you know it's like the i'm not saying this is easy to do or that it's a wonderful life should have done this right but like our goal needs to be to get beyond the money form right and beyond the value form and beyond the idea of like needing to make things to make profit right if we're actually making things to meet human need it turns out we actually have to make a lot less stuff we don't need to make furbies at least not as many of them Ooh. speaking of just like christmas gifts speaking like- of furbies this episode is brought to you by furbies <laughs> furbies buy a furby why not <laughs> That's what they had in the script. I don't, that's what it said. Literally for me to has say. to. His fur, buy, buy, buy one. You've had yeah. one before. What about another? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, 
So I think uh, I think we've had a good chat. We're ready to lay down some Shia LaBeoufs for It's a Wonderful mm-hmm. Life. Uh, Devin, yeah. where would this land for you? So I was going to give this film 8,000 Shia LaBeoufs and I lost them. <laughs> so I don't know, like three. <laughs> That's what I've got left. What about you? Yeah, that that's fair. Um, I'm going to say out of 131 Shia LaBeoufs, which is the length of this film, I will give it the amount of time that Clarence was actually involved in the film, uh, which is about uh, 29 minutes out of that 131 minutes. So 29 out of 131. Devin, run the numbers. What is 29 over 131? All right, let's we're opening up the calculator. 29131. We are at uh 22.1374 uh percent. Yeah, sounds about right. Let's say 20%. Gonna round down. Um <laughs> yeah, so that's what I that's that's what I would give it. Right. Uh, there's there's also an important matter that we forgot. Yeah, we had an episode on the master which uh, is one of like one of your favorite films, right? Like that's- I think it is my favorite film, yeah. And yet you didn't give that any Shia LaBeoufs. So what, is, yeah. what does that say about you? I, I, I thought, you know, in the moment, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. You know, we had a guest, we weren't in our usual rhythm. Uh, I uh, am ashamed. This is not the first time we've forgotten to give out Shia LaBeoufs. Uh, I just need to do better. I need to do better on this podcast. I am, uh, uh, the new year is coming. I am, I am ne- I'm not going to forget to give Shia LaBeoufs in the new year. But I, I thought long and hard about. <laughs> now we're getting to the bread and butter. How many Shia LaBeoufs I would give the master? Because I've had some time to think about this. Okay. And I give the master one great big Shia LaBeouf made out of sand that I curl up against and through which I resolve the contradictions of my own identity and sexuality. What about you? Yeah, so so honestly, tell me if this is, um, inappropriate, but I was going to give it uh, 4.5 Joaquin Phoenixes. Mm. So, which is explain. interesting because there's exactly <laughs> one Joaquin Phoenix in the film. Yeah, yeah. So think on that as you will. But it just it it feels like there there's a clear conversion rate between Joaquin Phoenix and Shia LaBeouf. Like, yeah, we don't even need to, everybody knows that. We don't need to get into that. Yeah, I don't I don't want to belittle our audience, but you understand everybody knows what the, conversion, what the right? rate is. So 4.5 Joaquin Phoenix is more than I gave Gladiator. So here we are. <laughs> uh, All right. Well, you know, we, we, we have just one, one more problem, which, you know, we're coming out the end of the year, the end of the month. Yeah which, you know, means I do need to pay Buzzsprout for our hosting fees. Right. And I was at the Buzzsprout studios. Buzzsprout is who we use to release our podcast, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just the ideas man. I don't do these things. Okay. I went to the the headquarters. Yeah. And I had the $18 in an envelope. 
and all then, in one place. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I I saw just a random old man that I wanted to make fun of uh, because I'm an ageist. Right. Right. And uh, in the process of doing so, he punched me in the jaw, knocked me out cold, and stole the money. So our account is like in a negative balance right now. And if I don't know what to do because like you do the editing, so I don't like to ask you for the money, but like, I, I have no, I'm a, I'm a grad student. I have no way of securing these funds. Like I've been out there on the street. I've got close readings of uh, Patricia Highsmith, the talented Mr. Ripley. Mm, I've got close readings of, uh, (laughs) Of the Beatles get back on my friend Matt Ellis's podcast. <laughs> I haven't listened yet, but it just came out today. You know, and our friends Better Red Than Dead with the Ripley podcast. I'm out there on the street. I'm like, I've got like, I- I've been buying all these cell phones and then like right. downloading the podcast onto the phone so I can then sell them to people for profit. But no one wants to pay seven hundred dollars for a for a locked phone with two podcast episodes on it. I'm like, I'm really in the, in the red here. Well, Devin, I've got good news for you. Really? Because guess who's going to pay for that Buzzsprout uh, monthly subscription? Who? It's the problematic character, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Annie, thank you so much. There's only one thing left to do. Devin, it's the end of 2021. Um, how do you, wait, shit, wrong key. Oh, you guys. Thanks for spending the year with your tall, but I'm saying in front of you. Uh, you know, check the show notes for where to find the podcast. <laughs> if you don't know by now. Anyways, here we go. Should no, all be forgotten and never brought to mind? What does old mean? That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. That's right. That's right. Out of boy, Clarence.